Chapter Five, Part Three of Autobiography. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Vicki Rands. Chapter Five: A Crisis in My Mental History. Monsieur Comte soon left the Saint Simonians, and I lost sight of him and his writings for a number of years but St. Simonians I continued to cultivate. I was kept all current of their progress by one of their most enthusiastic disciplines, Monsieur Gustave de Eichtel, who about that time passed a considerable interval in England. I was introduced to their chiefs, Bizard and Enfantin, in 1830, and as long as their public teachings and proselytism continued i read nearly everything they wrote their criticisms on the common doctrines of liberalism seemed to me full of important truth and it was partly by their writings that my eyes were opened to the very limited and temporary value of the old political economy which assumes private property and inheritance as indefeasible facts and freedom of production and exchange as dernier mot of social improvement the scheme gradually unfolded by the st simonians under which the labor and capital of society would be managed for the general account of the community every individual being required to take a share of labor either as thinker teacher artist or producer all being classed according to their capacity and remunerated according to their work appeared to me a far superior description of socialism to owens their aim seemed to me desirable and rational however their means might be inefficacious and though i never believed in the practicability nor in the beneficial operation of their social machinery i felt that the proclamation of such an ideal of human society could not but tend to give a beneficial direction to the efforts of others to bring society as at present constituted near to some ideal standard i honoured them most of all for what they had been most cried down for the boldness and freedom from prejudice with which they treated the subject of the family the most important of any and needing more fundamental alterations than remain to be made in any other great social institution but on which scarcely any reformer has the courage to touch in proclaiming the perfect equality of men and women an entirely new order of things in regard to their relations with one another the st simonians in common with owen and fourier have entitled themselves to the grateful remembrance of future generations in giving an account of this period of my life i have only specified such of my new impressions as appeared to me both at the time and since, to be a kind of turning points, marking a definite progress in my mode of thought. But these few selected points give a very insufficient idea of the quantity of thinking which I carried on respecting a host of subjects during these years of transition. Much of this, it is true, consisted in rediscovering things known to all the world, which i had previously disbelieved or disregarded but the rediscovery was to me a discovery giving me plenary possession of the truth not as traditional platitudes but fresh from their source and it seldom failed to place them in some new light but which they were reconciled with and seemed to confirm while they modified the truth less generally known which lay in my early opinions and in no essential part of which i at any time wavered all my new thinking only laid the foundation of these more deeply and strongly 
naturally while it often removed misapprehension and confusion of ideas which had perverted their effect for example during the later returns of my dejection the doctrine of what is called philosophical necessity weighed on my existence like an incubus i felt as if i was scientifically proved to be the helpless slave of antecedent circumstances as if my character and that of all others had been formed for us by agencies beyond our control and was wholly out of our own power i often said to myself what a relief it would be if i could disbelieve the doctrine of the formation of character by circumstances and remembering the wish of fox respecting the doctrine of resistance to governments that it might never be forgotten by kings nor remembered by subjects i said that it would be a blessing if the doctrine of necessity could be believed by all quod, the characters of others and disbelieved in regard to their own i pondered painfully on the subject till gradually i saw light through it i perceived the word necessity as a name for the doctrine of cause and effect applied to human action carried with it a misleading association and that this association was the operative force in the depressing and paralyzing influence which i had experienced i saw that though our character is formed by circumstances and our own desires can do much to shape those circumstances and that what is really inspiriting and ennobling in the doctrine of free will is the conviction that we have real power over the formation of our own character that our will by influencing some of our circumstances can modify our future habits or capabilities of willing all this was entirely consistent with the doctrine of circumstances or rather was the doctrine itself properly understood from that time i drew in my own mind a clear distinction between the doctrine of circumstances and fatalism discarding altogether the misleading word necessity the theory which i now for the first time rightly apprehended ceased altogether to be discouraging and besides the relief to my spirits i no longer suffered under the burden so heavy to one who aims at being a reformer in opinions of thinking one doctrine true and the contrary doctrine morally beneficial the train of thought which had extricated me from this dilemma seemed to me in after years fitted to render a similar service to others and it now forms the chapter on liberty and necessity in the concluding book of my system of logic again in politics though i no longer accepted the doctrine of the essay on government as a scientific theory though i ceased to consider representative democracy as an absolute principle and regarded it as a question of time place and circumstance though i now looked upon the choice of political institutions as a moral and educational question more than one of material interest thinking that it ought to be decided mainly by the consideration what great improvement in life and culture stands next in order for the people concerned as the condition of their further progress and what institutions are most likely to promote that nevertheless this change in the premises of my political philosophy did not alter my practical political creed as to the requirements of my own time and country i was never as much as ever a radical and democrat for europe and especially for england i thought the predominance of the aristocratic classes the noble and the rich in the english constitution an evil worth any struggle to get rid of not on account of taxes or any such comparatively small inconvenience but as the great demoralizing agency in the country demoralizing first because it made the conduct of the government an example of gross public immorality through the predominance of private over public interest in the state and the abuse of powers of legislation for the advantage of classes secondly and in a still greater degree because the respect of the multitude always attaching itself principally to that which in the existing state of society is the chief 
chief passport to power and under english institutions riches hereditary or acquired being the almost exclusive source of political importance riches and the signs of riches were almost the only things really respected and the life of the people was mainly devoted to the pursuit of them i thought that while the higher and richer classes held the power of government the instruction and improvement of the mass of the people were contrary to the self-interest of those classes because tending to render the people more powerful for throwing off the yoke but if the democracy obtained a large and perhaps the principal share in the governing power it would become the interest of the opulent classes to promote their education in order to ward off really mischievous errors and especially those which would lead to unjust violations of property on these grounds i was not only as ardent as ever for democratic institutions but earnestly hoped that owenite st simeon and all other anti-property doctrines might spread widely among the poor classes not that i thought that those doctrines true or desired that they should be acted on but in order that the higher classes might be made to see that they had more to fear from the poor when uneducated than when educated in this frame of mind the french revolution of july found me it roused my uttermost enthusiasm and gave me as it were a new existence i went at once to paris was introduced to lafayette and laid the groundwork of the intercourse i afterwards kept up with several of the active chiefs of the extreme popular party after my return i entered warmly as a writer into the political discussions of the time which soon became still more exciting by the coming in of lord grey's ministry and the proposing of the reform bill for the next few years i wrote copiously in newspapers it was about this time that von blanc who had for some time written the political articles in the examiner became the proprietor and editor of the paper it is not forgotten with what verve and talent as well as fine wit he carried it on during the whole period of lord grey's ministry and what importance it assumed as the principal representative in the newspaper press of radical opinions the distinguishing character of the paper was given to it entirely by his own articles which formed at least three-fourths of all the original writing contained in it but of the remaining fourth i contributed during those years a much larger share than any one else i wrote nearly all the articles on french subjects including a weekly summary of french politics often extending to considerable length together with many leading articles on general politics commercial and financial legislation and any miscellaneous subjects in which i felt interested and which were suitable to the paper including occasional reviews of books mere newspaper articles on the occurrences or questions of the moment gave no opportunity for the development of any general mode of thought but i attempted in the beginning of eighteen thirty one to embody in a series of articles headed the spirit of the age some of my new opinions and especially to point out in the character of present age the anomalies and evils characteristic of the transition from a system of opinions which had worn out to another only in process of being formed these articles were i fancy lumbering in style and not lively or striking enough to be at any time acceptable to newspaper readers but had they been far more attractive still at that particular moment when great political changes were impending and engrossing all minds these discussions were ill-timed and misfired altogether the only effect which i know to have been produced by them was that carlyle then living in a secluded part of scotland read them in his solitude and saying to himself as he afterwards told me here is a new mystic inquired on coming to london 
that autumn respecting their authorship an inquiry which was the immediate cause of our becoming personally acquainted i have already mentioned carlyle's earlier writings as one of the channels through which i received the influences which enlarged my early narrow creed but i do not think that those writings by themselves would ever have had any effect on my opinions what truths they contain though of the very kind which i was already receiving from other quarters were presented in a form and vesture less suited than any other to give them access to a mind trained as mine had been they seemed a haze of poetry and german metaphysics in which almost the only clear thing was a strong animosity to most of the opinions which were the basis of my mode of thought religious skepticism utilitarianism the doctrine of circumstances and the attaching any importance to democracy logic or political economy instead of my having been taught anything in the first instance by carlyle it was only in the proportion as i came to see the same truths through media more suited to my mental constitution that i recognized them in his writings then indeed the wonderful power with which he put them forth made a deep impression upon me and i was during a long period one of his most fervent admirers but the good his writings did me was not as philosophy to instruct but as poetry to animate even at the time when our acquaintance commenced i was not sufficiently advanced in my new modes of thought to appreciate him fully a proof of which is that on his showing me the manuscript of sartor resartus his best and greatest work which he just then finished i made little of it though when it came out about two years afterwards in fraser's magazine i read it with enthusiastic admiration and the keenest delight i did not seek and cultivate carlyle less on account of the fundamental differences in our philosophy he soon found out that i was not another mystic and when for the sake of my own integrity i wrote to him a distinct profession of all those of my opinions which i knew he most disliked he replied that the chief difference between us was that i was as yet consciously nothing of a mystic i do not know at what period he gave up the expectation that i was destined to become one but though both his and my opinions underwent in subsequent years considerable changes we never approached much nearer to each other's modes of thought than we were in the first years of our acquaintance i did not however deem myself a competent judge of carlyle i felt that he was a poet and that i was not that he was a man of intuition which i was not and that as such he not only saw many things long before me which i could only when they were pointed out to me hobble after and prove but that it was highly probable he could see many things which were not visible to me even after they were pointed out i knew that i could not see round him and could never be certain that i saw over him and i never presumed to judge him with any definiteness until he was interpreted to me by one greatly the superior of both of us who was more a poet than he and more a thinker than i whose own mind and nature included his and infinitely more among the persons of intellect whom i had known of old the one with whom i had now most points of agreement was the elder austin i have mentioned that he always set himself in opposition to early sectarians and latterly he had like myself come under new influences having been appointed professor of jurisprudence in the london university now college university he had lived for some time at bonn to study for his lectures 
and the influence of german literature and of the german character and state of society had made a very perceptible change in his views of life his personal disposition was much softened he was less militant and polemic his tastes had begun to turn themselves towards the poetic and contemplative he attached much less importance than formerly to outward changes unless accompanied by a better cultivation of the inward nature he had a strong distaste for the general meanness of english life the absence of enlarged thoughts and unselfish desires the low objects on which the faculties of all classes of the english are intent even the kind of public interests which englishmen care for he held in very little esteem he thought that there was more practical good government and which is true enough infinitely more care for the education and mental improvement of all ranks of people under the prussian monarchy than under the english representative government and he held with the french economistes that the real security for good government is un pupil éclair which is not always the fruit of popular institutions and which if it could be had without them would do their work better than they though he approved of the reform bill he predicted what in fact occurred that it would not produce the great immediate improvements in government which many expected from it the men he said who could do these great things did not exist in the country there were many points of sympathy between him and me both in new opinions he had adopted and in the old ones which he retained like me he never ceased to be a utilitarian and with all his love for the germans and enjoyment of their literature never became in the smallest degree reconciled to the innate principle metaphysics he cultivated more and more a kind of german religion a religion of poetry and feeling with little if anything of positive dogma while in politics and here it was that i most differed with him he acquired an indifference bordering on contempt for the progress of popular institutions though he rejoiced in that of socialism as the most effectual means of compelling the powerful classes to educate the people and to impress on them the only real means of permanently improving their material condition a limitation of their numbers neither was he at this time fundamentally opposed to socialism in itself as an ultimate result of improvement he professed great disrespect for what he called the universal principles of human nature of the political economists and insisted on the evidence which history and daily experience afford of the extraordinary pliability of human nature a phrase which i have somewhere borrowed from him nor did he think it is possible to set any positive bounds to the moral capabilities which might unfold themselves in mankind under an enlightened direction of social and educational influences whether he retained all these opinions to the end of life i know not certainly the modes of thinking of his later years and especially of his last publication were much more tory in their general character than those which he held at this time my father's tone of thought and feeling i now felt myself at a great distance from greater indeed than a full and calm explanation and reconsideration on both sides might have shown to exist in reality but my father was not one with whom calm and full explanations on fundamental points of doctrine could be expected at least with one whom he might consider as in some sort a deserter from his standard fortunately we were almost always in strong agreement on the political questions of the day 
which engrossed a large part of his interest and of his conversation. On those matters of opinion on which we differed, we talked little. He knew that the habit of thinking for myself, which his mode of education had fostered, sometimes led me to opinions different from his, and he perceived from time to time that I did not always tell him how different. I expected no good, but only pain to both of us from discussing our differences, and I never expressed them but when he gave utterance to some opinion or feeling repugnant to mine, in a manner which would have made it disingenuous on my part to remain silent. It remains to speak of what I wrote during these years, which independently of my contributions to newspapers was considerable. In 1830 and 1831, I wrote the five essays since published under the title of Essays on Some Unsettled Questions of Political Economy, almost as they now stand, except that in 1833 I partially rewrote the fifth essay. They were written with no immediate purpose of publication, and when some years later I offered them to a publisher, he declined them. They were only printed in 1844, after the success of the system of logic. I also resumed my speculations on this last subject and puzzled myself, like others before me, with the great paradox of the discovery of new truths by general reasoning. As to the fact, there could be no doubt, as little could it be doubted, that all reasoning is resolvable into syllogisms, and that in every syllogism the conclusion is actually contained and implied in the premises. How being so contained and implied, it could be new truth, and how the theorems of geometry, so different in appearance from the definitions and axioms, could be all contained in these, was a difficulty which no one, I thought, had sufficiently felt and which, at all events, no one had succeeded in clearing up. The explanations offered by Watley and others, though they might give a temporary satisfaction, always in my mind, left a mist still hanging over the subject. At last, when reading a second or third time the chapters on reasoning in the second volume of Dougald Stewart, interrogating myself on every point and following out, as far as I knew how, every topic of thought which the book suggested, I came upon an idea of his respecting the use of axioms in ratiocination, which I did not remember to have before noticed, but which now, in meditating on it, seemed to me not only true of axioms, but of all general propositions whatever, and to be the key of the whole perplexity. From this germ grew the theory of the syllogism, propounded in the second book of the logic, which I immediately fixed by writing it out, and now, with greatly increased hope of being able to produce a work on logic of some originality and value, I proceeded to write the first book, from the rough and imperfect draft I had already made. What I now wrote became the basis of that part of the subsequent treatise, 
except that it did not contain the theory of kinds which was a later addition suggested by otherwise inextricable difficulties which met me in my first attempt to work out the subject of some of the concluding chapters of the third book at the point which i had now reached i made a halt which lasted five years i had come to the end of my tether i could make nothing satisfactory of induction at this time i continued to read any book which seemed to promise light on the subject and appropriated as well as i could the results but for a long time i found nothing which seemed to open to me any very important vein of meditation in eighteen thirty two i wrote several papers for the first series of tate's magazine and one for a quarterly periodical called the jurist which had been founded and for a short time carried on by a set of friends all lawyers and law reformers with several of whom i was acquainted the paper in question is the one on the rights and duties of the state respecting corporation and church property now standing first among the collected dissertations and discussions where one of my articles in tate the currency juggle also appears in the whole mass of what i wrote previous to these there is nothing of sufficient permanent value to justify reprinting the paper in the jurist which i still think a very complete discussion of the rights of the state over foundations showed both sides of my opinions asserting as firmly as i should have done at any time the doctrine that all endowments are national property which the government may and ought to control but not as i should once have done condemning endowments in themselves and proposing that they should be taken to pay off the national debt on the contrary i urged strenuously the importance of a provision for education not dependent on the mere demand of the market that is on the knowledge and discernment of average parents but calculated to establish and keep up a higher standard of instruction that is likely to be spontaneously demanded by the buyers of the article all these opinions have been confirmed and strengthened by the whole of my subsequent reflections end of chapter five part three recording by vicky rands